Greetings and welcome back to The Dive, the weekly podcast series in which we examine issues brought up in the previous week's Daf Yomi selection and look at them in depth. Uh, and uh, per request, uh, we're going to take a look over the course of this and the next shiur at a very thorny, agadic passage in the, uh, in the fifth parak, uh, on Daf Nonhe and Nunvav. And it is commonly known as the sugya of Kol HaOmer Ex Chata Eno Elotoeh. It is a series of statements authored by Rabbi Yonatan, presented to us by his student Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, uh, that lists six different characters or groups of characters in Tanakh who apparently sinned, and his claim is, at least um, as the, the surface reading of it, is that uh, he didn't sin. But this is really our first dive into the world of Agadah, so we're going to spend a little time talking about Agadah. First of all, Agadah that we're speaking about is in the broader um, context of literature that we know as Midrash. So very quick introduction to Midrash. Uh, Midrash is essentially expounding. The word Midrash means to seek. And what you're doing when you're engaged in Midrash is you're seeking more information from a text, uh, whatever the text may be, uh, than is readily apparent. And the reason I say whatever the text may be is we even have a Mishnah Ketubot in which we have a Midrash on the language of the Ketubah, meaning the text is the language of the Ketubah, and there was a Midrash developed from it that taught certain laws of the Ketubah. Midrash, typically, though, when we refer to it, means that you are expounding on a verse in Tanakh. Now, Midrash, which goes back as far as the period of Tanakh itself, uh, and the truth is continues till this modern day, uh, is broadly broken down into two types. One, very formal, much more limited, both in um, teachers of the Midrash or composers of the Midrash, the time period of the Midrash, the nature of the Midrash, and more cri- most critically, the rules of the Midrash. It's referred to as Midrash Halacha. Midrash Halacha means that it is a text chiefly that is itself a legal text, which means it's almost always going to be in the Torah, and that the result of the Midrashic inquiry is a legal statement. And so therefore, uh, if we find that, um, that the Torah says in this last week's parasha, you shall not put a stumbling block before the blind, and the Midrash halachai in it is, to, is that it means not to give somebody a, a deliberately bad advice, especially self-serving bad advice, uh, then that is a Midrash halacha. It's a legal statement, and the result is a legal uh, result from the Midrash. Uh, midrash halacha uh, chiefly comes from the period of the Chachamim of the Mishnah that we refer to as Tanaim, and the names that you will find in Midrash halacha usually, not exclusively, will be the names that you're familiar with from the Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shemar, the two great schools of Midrash halacha that had different approaches, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer, and of course, later on, after Rabbi Akiva, his students, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yud, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon, etc., Rabbi Yud Anasi, all involved in the world of Midrash Halacha. Um, Midrash Halacha is, uh, uh, is composed around the four books of the Torah that contain legal literature, which is Shmot, only part of Shmot, uh, Vayikra, majorly the most significant book of Midrash Halacha, 
by unanimous acclaim is Torat Kohanim, the Midrash Halacha and Vayikra, known as Sifra, the book. And there is Midrash Halacha and Vayikra, known as Sifra, which is the other books, Kilu, uh, also very significant. And um, all come from that period of the, of the Mishnah. Um, I said almost exclusively only because there are Midrashe Halacha authored by the Chachamim of the Gemara, and, uh, and there's been some study about that. But then again, that's not the, the major focus of Midrash Halacha, the major time period. Midrash Halacha is in Hebrew. Midrash Halacha was taught in the Beit Midrash. It was an issue of scholarship. Uh, as I mentioned, the most critical dividing line between Midrash Halacha and the Midrash we're about to engage in is that Midrash Halacha is also very bound by formal rules and very contentious, meaning that the presentation of Midrash Halacha is to argue in, fa- in, in favor of a particular legal position. And so therefore, a, when you read a Midrash Halacha, if there's more than one opinion there, the opinions will not just be, I have something else to say, but it will say, you know, you're wrong because, and there'll be a counter-argument or a counter-proposal as to what the text may mean. And that's because the dispute is really about the law. In some cases, the counter will not be, I disagree with you about the final law, but I'll disagree with you about how you got there, meaning the method of the Midrash. But in any case, it will be uh, disputed and not contentious in the negative sense, but there will be contending going on over the meaning of the words. Uh, that's Midrash Halacha. Midrash Agadah is a very different world. Agadah literally means stories, things that are told, lahagid, things that are recounted. The word Hagadah that we know from Pesach is the same word, Hagadah, Agadah, things that are retold and recounted. And so, broadly speaking, all rabbinic literature that is not purely legalistic, we refer to as Agadah, whether it be uh, advice, um, uh, ethical norms, etiquette, um, whether it be uh, stories that we have, whether stories about people in Tanakh or stories about people from the period of the rabbis or anticipated stories about future characters, including messianic stories. This is all in the area of Agadah, things of theology uh, and, and of that nature, Agadah. Uh, reconstructing um, events from Tanakh and giving explanations for them in narrative, that is, uh, that is Agadah. And so Midrash Agadah is whenever the Agadah is, part, uh, is associated with a text in Tanakh. In other words, stories about the rabbis themselves are, never are uh, based on verses in Tanakh, and on some occasion will be associated with a verse of, uh, in Tanakh. So that if one rabbi says about the other, oh, he reminds me of, and he has, I associate him with that particular verse, and Allah Amar Shlomo, when Shlomo said, I am proud of my son who is wise, he was referring to you, that's a, a nice association, but Midrash Agadah typically is when we have stories in Tanakh and then there's a lesson that kind of unfolds around them, or there are psukim in Tanakh and then we use those psukim to, uh, to illustrate things. Um, again, this is a very, very cursory introduction, but just for our purposes. Um, so when we talk about Midrashim, Typically, the way people refer to them colloquially is Midrash Agadah. I mean, when we say Midrash, we mean Midrash Agadah. One of the very worst statements that a person can make. Um, I can really only think of one or two others that are in this league. 
uh, is to say, oh, it's just a midrash. When something, somebody quotes something from Midrash Chazal and is dismissive about it, it puts it down, and it, that invariably reflects a lack of depth on the person uh, who is evaluating it and not a lack of depth of the Midrash itself. Midrashim are all filled with wisdom, filled with, uh, with all sorts of interesting twists and turns and new ways of looking at things. Uh, and uh, being dismissive of Midrash, it really is, it comes at your own expense of missing tremendous uh, information and, uh, and putting some, some very uh, bad cynicism out in the air. Uh, and so we need to address Midrashim with tremendous uh, seriousness and rigor. And people often have the, uh, the impression that studying a Masachet of Gemara that has a lot of Agadah in it, like Masachet Brachot, uh, Masachet Migilah, Masachet Tanit, is quote-unquote easy. People will often say, oh, I want to do an easy Masachet, I'll do that. There's nothing easy about it, and to study it properly is actually uh, quite challenging. And one of the reasons it's challenging is because the legal tradition that we have it has a library that is just uh, shelves and shelves and shelves, uh, or gigabytes and gigabytes, if you will, of information, of scholarship over the course of the last, uh, let's say, call it a thousand years. Uh, Agada, there's been very little systematic work done on Agadah. The Maharal had a particular approach that he developed in the 16th century and wrote extensively on Agadah. Rav Kook had a particular approach. The Maharsha had a particular approach. Uh, but uh, in no sense was it, were any of them comprehensive. And so the world of Agadah is a little bit more of an open area. There's more room to examine other possible ways to view it. Uh, and on the other hand, it's more uncharted, so that carries opportunity and carries challenges. Um, and th- there is a whole study that we're not going to engage in, which is why particular agadot appear in particular tractates or in particular sugyot, um, and why how agadot link to each other. So that uh, in our parak, we were talking about responsibility of a sage towards the members of his generation based on the Mishnah and the story of Rabbi Lazar and Azariah and his neighbor who had the cow, etc. Uh, and from there, it goes into this whole long discussion, which, uh, you know, so studying how those things get connected and why something else gets brought in is an interesting study by itself, but one we're not going to engage in, in this series, this two-part series. Uh, and so I have a couple of notes here that I think are important premises for us to to take into account when we start studying Agadah. Uh, and I put five down, um, sort of four down, and then a fifth is operative. Uh, the first one that's critical is to understand that the Baalei Midrash, uh, who chiefly uh, operate from the 4th century until the 10th century, were not exegetes. They did not engage in parshanut. They did not in any sense... Uh, sit down with a text and say, okay, now we're going to explain the text and have that explanation committed to a system which then later got written down. That's not what they, what they engaged in. Why Parshanut even got started, why the notion of a systematic explanation of a text that we are all accustomed to, really ever since Rashi, and perhaps even earlier than that, uh, did not begin until at the very earliest, the ninth century. Why it started when it did is another study by itself, and perhaps we'll do that someday, uh, probably not in this form. But uh, it, Chazal were not involved in that. The Balei Midrash were not involved in that. What they were trying to do was 
to utilize um, traditional messages, ideas, to shape how we look at a text, to shape how we look at characters in the text, to shape how we look at our world around us today, meaning in their day, typically Eretz Yisrael, typically under Byzantium, um, and, uh, and to utilize the text of the Tanakh to do so. In many cases, they were driven by a desire to flesh out the story. A story may leave certain gaps in it, may have certain questions. Um, why did the brothers feel the way that they did about Yosef? Um, why didn't Yaakov accept consolation after all those years, etc.? Uh, what was uh, going through Avram's mind is going up to the Akedah, things that are not addressed by the text, and to explore those sort of things, the Midrashim. And again, because there's not a contention for a halachic result. As a result of that, Midrashim will have one approach and then another approach, another approach, and the approaches don't typically negate each other. In our piece today, we'll see one that does. Um, Actually, we'll see it next week. But uh, they typically don't negate each other because they're all just offering different perspectives that are not mutually exclusive, and there doesn't need to be a right answer at the end because it's not operative in a halachic sense. Um, the, uh, what, what drives a Midrash often will be something that is uh, going on in the world of the Bal Midrash and of his audience at that time. And in some cases, not all that many, but in some cases, we're actually able to identify it by studying something of Roman history of the time, the history of, uh, of, the, of economics, of war, etc. at the time. Uh, often studying uh, early Christianity gives us an insight into Midrash because often the Midrashim are polemic and they are responses to Christian claims. And we'll see a couple examples of that again in, in next week's session when we get into the text of our Midrash. Um, so with all of that, um, uh, it, we're going to take a look at this, the famous and very contentious sugya, Kol HaOmer David Chata Eno Ela To'eh. Anyone who says David sinned is only being is mistaken. Uh, so in order to first do that, we've got to see the Midrashic passage. All right, so we're going to take a look at that. Uh, we're going to look at really just uh, the, the form of that particular uh, con- uh, passage so that we can see where this story, this, this the discussion about David fits in. Um, if possible, we'll try to get some more information about the Baal HaMidrash, the author of the Midrash, and if possible, maybe about what's going on in life in, the, in those times, if that'll help us get a sense. Um, and then, before we actually address the text, we have to see the story in Tanakh, because the Baal HaMidrash, this is critical, the Baal HaMidrash was addressing a community that knew the story. They knew the Tanakh. And therefore, he wasn't introducing them to David for the first time through this Agadah. He was introducing them to a David that they already knew from the text and giving them a new wrinkle, a new way to look at it. So we shouldn't be behind that eight ball. We should also be familiar with the story and then address the, uh, the, the after we know the story, then to look at the Midrash. So we're going to do those preparatory things today and in next week's Shir, we're going to actually look at the Midrash and, uh, and at the Agadah in our text, in, in Masachat Shabbat, and we will go from there. Okay, we'll take a look at the broader uh, piece here in Source 1. Uh, as you can see, the piece opens up with Amar Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani Amar Rabbi Yonatan. 
Rabbi Yonatan was a Chacham in Eretz Yisrael uh, a little bit after the times of Rabbi Yudanasi, uh, mid-third century, um, and is known chiefly as a Baal Agadah, meaning everybody has their expertise. There are people we're very familiar with, with from the world of Halakha, and, uh, and they hardly are heard from in the world of Agadah. And there are famous homileticists whose Agadot are, uh, are constantly quoted, and you never hear their names in the context of Halakha. And that's because people have their different expertise. And as a matter of fact, we even have the statement in the Gemara where Rabbi Akiva gets involved in Midrash, and some of his colleagues say, Akiva, klach lacha eitzalo halimunigaim. And they say, Rabbi Akiva, get back, get back to your Beit Midrash of the very difficult and intricate halachot. As if to say, Midrash is not your, Agadah is not your, your cup of tea. Now, whether that's true or not, not the point. The point is that they, they were themselves recognized that different people have different kinds of expertise. Okay, so again, Rabbi Yonatan is a famous Baal Agadah. In Eretz Yisrael, uh, the fact that he's in the middle of the 3rd century is critical for us. Okay. Kol ha'omer Ruven chata eno elatoel. This is how the sugya starts. Anyone who says Ruven sinned is but erring. Eno elatoel means he's, he's wrong. Now, what's he referring to? So remember, he's talking to an audience that knows the story of Ruven and Bilhah, and reading the story of Ruven and Bilhah is convinced that Ruven sinned. And, uh, and therefore, you come and say, no, you're wrong. He didn't sin. That's what it sounds like he's saying, right? Shinamar. Now, the first thing, and this is just the form of the sugya. We're going to see the first one. So uh, the first one, and then all six of them for, follow this form. Shinamar, he quotes a pasuk. That's his proof text that Reuven didn't sin. Because after the sin with Bilhah, we'll talk about that in a minute. After the sin with Bilhah, uh, the immediate next statement is that when Yaakov heard about it, and Bnei Yaakov were Shnei Masar, meaning Yaakov's sons were 12. So what's Rabbi Yonatan's take on it? It means the fact that it says that Yaakov's sons were 12, there were 12 sons, all 12 are together. Now, Shkulim Kachat sounds like they're all equal, of equal value. And taken that way, it would mean that uh, Yehuda and Yosef, who later become the leaders in the family, and uh, Dan and Naphtali, who really play a much less significant role in the family, are all the same. Or Shkulim Kachat may mean that they are defined as a unit. All right, however we interpret it. So this is now the other part of the Midrash. He's got to say, okay, now I've got to contend with the fact that it says that Ruvain lay with Bilhah, Bilha, who is his father's concubine. Now, what's the story? What's the backstory? Uh, in Paraklamet Hay in Breshit, we hear about the death of Rachel at the birth of Binyamin. And Yaakov sets up a matzeva for her, and the, and the next couple of psukim have the family continuing to travel south. And they go past Migdal Eder, which is defined later in the Nevim as being Yerushalayim. And, um, and it says, Vayishkav Ruvain at Bilha Pilagashaviv. Ruvain Vayishkav, which the simple read of it is, sleeps with Bilha, his father's concubine. Um, and and uh, if that's the case, that's a terrible sin, sleeping with your father's wife. Uh, it may be adultery if she's considered a wife. Either way, it's somebody your father had relations with. It's very bad. And so Rabbi Yonatan says, what it means is, Malamed Shebilbel Matzao Shalaviv. What it means is that he moved the beds around. 
In other words, after Rachel died, and there's more story that comes in the Agadai here that we studied last week in the Daf, where it says that he was concerned with his mother's honor. His mother, Leah, had been shafted as the uh, second wife, as it were, all those years. Now that Rachel was dead, he wanted his mother to take place as the first wife. And supposedly that Yaakov moved Bilhaz, who was Rachel's uh, handmaid, he moved her bed into his tent. And so Ruvain tried to organize the politics of who's sleeping with Yaakov what night by moving the bed around. So the text considers it as if he slept with her. Right? So we're not going to look at the issue of Ruvain, but that's just the form of the, of the sugiya. And then what we have, just as a side note, is in our Gemarot, at that point it says, Ruvain, B'nai Eli, B'nai Shmuel, David, Ushlomo, Vyoash, Siman. And that was something that was put in by the late editors of the Gemara as like a, a mnemonic for remembering what the next sugiya was. The next sugiya, it was Ruvain, and we already had that, then Eli's sons, then Shmuel's sons, <coughs> in both cases two sons in Sefer Shmuel uh, who behave very badly, David, our case, Shlomo, and Yoash is really a sort for Yoshiahu. Uh, and so the Sugiah is going to go through all of them. And then you can see it. Again, that's what I'm going to come back to. Now, the, this is just a curious mixture, because of the six that are here, that's either uh, individuals or pairs, um, you have Ruvain, who perhaps would be highly motivated to rehabilitate, uh, being the eldest son of Yaakov, and his name is on the Choshen, etc. David, we certainly understand why we'd want to do that. Shlomo, we'd be curious as to what the sin is, but then again, open up Shmulachim Aleph, Perakid Aleph, and you'll see and then we understand what our motivation would be. Yoshiao, it's a little hard to understand what the sin is. Yoshiao is the last great king we have, and the text says there was never somebody who did chuvas to come so close, come back to God like Yoshiao. But then again, the fact that it says he did chuva indicates he did sin, he didn't sin, toet. But B'nai Eli and B'nai Shmuel is a little bit difficult because B'nai Eli are despicable characters. Eli's two sons, Chofni Ufinachas, are terrible characters who make 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 the visit to the Mishkan in Shiloh an unpleasant experience for everybody, and nobody wants to come because of their bad behavior. And Shmuel's sons are corrupt and are not worthy to take over, and that's why the people demand a king. So we're a little surprised by the fact that these this six is a group because four of them we really understand our our sympathy to try to show them in a good light, and two of them are the two pairs kind of hard to understand. But again, we'll leave that for another time. Again, there are so many questions that come up, and that's why Agadah is not easy. There's lots of questions that come up, and many of them remain unanswered. Many of them take a lot of work to figure out. Okay, but remember, we said the first thing we want to do is the literary context. There's the literary context. Now you see it. Now you see the form. The second thing we want to do is see if we can find anything out about the author of this Midrash to get a sense of what he means when he says something. Like, what, what do we know anything else about him? Well, thank God, we know lots about Rabbi Yonatan, and specifically as he is quoted by Rabbi Shmuel Barachmani. We have Midrashim in lots of places, both in the Gemara and the Midrasha collections. Uh, and so let's take a look. In Masachet Bava Batra, uh, towards the end of the first parak and the sugya of the Kidve Kodesh, 
says, Our same rabbi. And watch this. Call Haomer Malkat Shiva Ishahita. He says something here. It's remarkable. Malkat Shiva, the queen of Shiva, or queen of Sheba, as she's called in English, who came to visit Shlomo and brought lots of gifts and uh, was bowled over by how brilliant he is and how great everything is and how marvelous it is and says that the members of his court should be so happy that they're in such an august presence um, that uh, anybody who says that that's a woman, same exact phrase, is but mistaken. So my malkat shva, malkuta deshva. Malkuta deshva. He says malkat shva doesn't mean the queen of, but rather the kingdom of. All right, so it means representatives of the kingdom of that, or there was a king. For Malkat Shva, which, by the way, throughout the story of Malkat Shva, every verb that appears there appears in the feminine. Uh, she says, and she sees, and she gives, and he gives to her. It's all in the feminine. Uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing. But what that tells us is that the Shwamranachmani, quoting Rabbi Yonatan, says, anybody who says this exact for, formula, Anybody who says X is but mistaken, he's taking a, st- a, a statement. The statement of X is a statement that on the face of it is the only way to look at things. And he's saying something that's absolutely surprising, that, that it's the opposite of what you think. All right, so let's keep that in mind. Uh, and now let's take a look at uh, a couple other statements of Rishwam Nachmani quoting Rabbi Yonatan. And we have one in Masachat Moed Katan about David. And not only about David, but about David and our particular story. Amar Rabbi Shmuel Amar Rabbi Yonatan. Remember what we said about Yoshiahu. Yoshiahu is a great king. We love Yoshiahu. And Yoshiahu, who is the last great uh, king of, of Judea, dies in about the year 610 BCE. And Yoshiahu, um, sorry, 609 BCE, Yoshiahu. Um, um, is there's no reason to think he did something wrong that you'd have to say this. And again, remember, Rashwamarachmani's statements are always if you think that white is white, you're wrong. And as he takes something, and here, why would we think Yoshiahu sinned? You have to tell me you're wrong if you think he sinned. And the answer is because he says there was never anybody who did tshuva like Yoshiahu. That means there must have been something wrong. Keep that in mind as we look at this next statement. Masachat Moed Katan. Amar Rabbi Amar Rabbi Yonatan, Neum David ben Yishai, Neum Hagever who come al. Now this is David's famous last words, although they're not his last words, but it's presented as a farewell speech at the end of Shmuel Bet in Parakhaf Gimel, and says this is the speech of David ben Yishai and the speech of the man who was lifted up, who come al. Right, and now what's his drush on this? Neum David ben Yishai, shehikim ula shel tshuva. That he raised the yoke of tshuva. In other words, who come al, he interprets not as was raised up, like raised up as a king, but who raised the yoke up. And whether that means that he demonstrated how anybody can do tshuva, or he raised the bar for tshuva so that you really have to do tshuva in a serious way, not our concern. The point is that David is presented here as a bal tshuva. Now, if based on the other statement, if he's Baal Tshuva, that means he sinned. So, and and Rabbi, Yon, Rabbi Yonatan here is identifying, Shor Menachman, quoting Rabbi Yonatan, is identifying David as the one, the master of Tshuva. If he's the master of Tshuva, then he sinned. So, we have a little bit of a quagmire here, but just we're going to put all the pieces on the table here. Now, 
One other thing to notice about Rabbi Shorem Bar Nachmani, quoting Rabbi Yonatan, and I'll tell you a little story that that some sort of my own background with this this sugya, at least uh, going back a number of years. Um, I once went to visit Professor Yehuda Litzur, Zechur Tzadik Racha, who was the the head of the Bible department at Bar Ilan. Uh, and uh, I went to visit him. I'd called his son, who was a teacher of mine and a, and, a, and a very dear friend, and I presented a problem to him about understanding the sugya of David and Bathsheba. And he said, go talk to my father. So I went to, his, to meet with his father. I had a delightful time. And he made an offhand comment. His offhand comment was, the author of that statement was a well-known polemicist against early Christianity. All right, it parked in the back of my head, but I never really looked into it. Decades later, I finally did some investigation and it didn't take a whole lot to find out how right he was. Uh, in Breshit Rabbah, in Source 4, we have the following the following Midrash. Rabbi Shwamar Nachman, Bishem Rabbi Yonatan. Nachman, Nachman, the same thing. Um, Amar, he has the following Midrash. Moshe So Hashem is telling Moshe to write the Torah. Hayakotev Masekol Yom Vayom. He goes now to the beginning of Breshit, and Moshe is writing this down, ostensibly at the end of his life. And Hashem is telling him, write down Yom Rishon, Yom Echad, Yom Shini, Yom Shlishi, etc. Kevan Shegiel Pasuk Hazet. Once he got on the sixth day to this Pasuk, Shenemar, One of the thorniest Pasukim in all of Tanakh, and the thorniest Pasuk certainly in the story of creation, which is God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the problems here are replete, but the main issue is two problems. The first is na'aseh, let us make man. Who's he talking to? And the other is as our image. And the Christians love this pasuk. They adore this pasuk uh, for reasons that don't need to be stated. So now, the Midrash says as follows. Amar lefanav, Moshe said to God, when God said, write this down, ribon ha'olam, master of the universe, ma'atanotein pitchon pelaminim, why are you giving an opening to the heretics? Meaning, the heretics will look at this pasuk and they'll say, see, we're right. Now, who are the minim? Not in every case, but in most cases, minim refers to the early Christians. Whether they were the Jewish Christians or after the, the, the group had broken away totally and formed their own religion, it refers to the early Christians. And so Moshe is saying, you're giving a pitron pala minim. Now, stop for a second here. Who's Moshe actually concerned about? The Canaanites? Is he concerned about Amalek? Is he concerned about Moab taking a look in the Torah and saying, see, we're right? Of course not. They don't care what it says in the Torah. This is not a statement about Moshe. This is a statement about Rabbi Yonatan, meaning Rabbi Yonatan is reflecting that in his day, the Christians in Israel where he lives pestered the Jews by saying, look, it says right there that God said, let us make man in our image. You see that God comes in the form of man and that there's multiple and the, and the Trinity, etc. It all fits together. So the Midrash is bothered by this. And it has Moshe saying to God, you're making, giving an opening to the Minim. Itmaha. Amarlo, so what does God say back? Ktov, you write what I tell you. Somebody wants to make a mistake, let them make their own mistake. Now, what kind of an answer to that? Not our problem for right now. Not in the focus of this year. Point is that Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani quotes Rabbi Yonatan in what is very clearly a polemic Midrash. A Midrash, which is a response to the early Christians. And here's another one. In that same collection, Breshit Rabbah, one day later, on Shabbat, 
says famously, God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified the seventh day. Now, the simple read of that is that that's a statement being made after Matan Torah and saying that the Kiddushah Shabbat and the blessing of Shabbat is something that's born into creation, woven into creation, and such that we who got the Torah at Har Sinai and were given the mitzvah of Shabbat even before that with the man, that we should understand that that mitzvah is something that's built into creation. It's not up to us to declare what day of the week is Shabbat. Shabbat is built in, and Kedusha, Kviya Vakaim, as the Gemara says, it's a set Kedusha that's built into the fabric. However, the Midrash has another take. Tavar Acher Lama Bercho, and there's a whole list of things. Shuamar Nachman, Amar, and now without Rabbi Yonatan, Sheino Nidche, says, what's the big bracha of Shabbat that it can never be pushed off? Meaning, Yom Tov Nidche. Yom HaKippurim Nidche. What it means by Nidche here is it moves from day to day. You know, uh, Rosh Hashanah this coming year is going to be on Shabbat. This past year it was on, uh, it was on a Monday, right? So we, it depends on every year. It's on a different day. Shabbat ain't Nidche. Shabbat never moves. Now, what kind of statement is that? Unless we're responding to the early Christians who moved Shabbat to Sunday. And he's saying, no, that built into the creation of Shabbat. So, again... What we see is Rabbi Shmuel Nachmani, who are in two midrashim close to each other, in midrash and Bereshit Rabbah, is clearly responding to the early Christians, and that becomes important for understanding our midrash. Although we'll get to that next week. Okay, the second, the third, and the last thing that we have to do here, and it will certainly take the rest of our time, is to read through the story of David and and to really get to make sure that we know the story itself, make sure we see what happened, and just read it through. Without uh, com- without commentary, except to explain what's going on, and I printed the entire two prakim, which is Shmuel Bet Perak Yud Aleph and Perak Yud Bet, uh, here on pages uh, two and three, and then pages four and five is the translation of that story. So if you want to follow it in English, I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and uh, and we'll walk it through. Okay, background is um, the king of Jordan's um, father died. So David sent a delegation to console him. The king's advisors suggested that the delegation was not there to console him, but rather to spy out the land. And so they, uh, in an act of diplomatic um, threat uh, or diplomatic, uh, shall we say, uh, impropriety, um, tore their clothes and shaved their beards and sent them packing. And that was essentially an act of war. And so David sends Yoav, his chief of staff, to go to battle against Ammon. The details of the battle are not our concern here, but this is the first time that we hear about David sending soldiers into battle and not going into battle. Okay, so now, and we're going to pick it up here. What happened is they go to war only in the spring and the summer. They couldn't war during the winter months. It was rainy, it was muddy. So it was, again, that part of the year they went out to go to war. So Yoav has set up a siege against the city. And and immediately we got a sense of something ominous here, that they're all out there and they're laying siege to Ammon, and David in the meantime is in Yerushalayim. It was in evening time. Why is that? Well, this is summertime. And in summertime, everybody in the Middle East, long time custom, uh, takes a nap in the afternoon. And David gets up from his nap. And he walks on top of the roof. Now, why is he walking on top of the roof? So, again, anybody who spent time in, uh, in Israel, 
uh, understands that especially in the summer, it's around the end of the day, there's a nice breeze, you walk on top of the roof, you get the nice breeze. Okay. He sees a woman bathing from on top of his roof. In other words, his uh, palace, as we recently found uh, the dig, is near the top of Ir David. And so from the top of his palace, you look down, you could see quite a bit. And he sees a woman bathing from his position on top. The woman is quite beautiful. Is she bathing? Is she in the mikvah? Is she absolutely without clothes? Unclear, but she's quite beautiful. So David sends a messenger to find out about the woman. By the way, the language here indicates, David, you should know this. This is Bathsheba, who is the daughter of Eliam, who we'll find out later on is one of David's colonels. And she's the wife of Uriachiti, who's another one of your colonels. And by the way, Eliam is also evidently the son of Achitophel, who is David's advisor, who later joins Avshalom in the rebellion. So there's a lot of twisty connections here. All right. And David, again, is sending. Now he sends messengers. And they have her brought. They have her brought to him, and he has relations with her. And she had been sanctified from her Tumah. Now, that's a critical piece because that means that beforehand, and evidently maybe this was what was happening when she was bathing, she was going to the mikvah from her Tumah. Tumah, assuming, is Nida. And that means that beforehand, when her husband went off to war, she was in Nida. That's critical and and uh, for the background of the story. Then she goes home. And then she finds out she's pregnant. She sends a message to David. Notice how the word switches here. Now she's the one in charge. She sends a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. All right. So David now takes one position, which is to send a message to Yoav, send Uriah, one of the top colonels, uh, and ostensibly this is to get a report from the battlefield or give him a furlough. David. He sends him. David asks him how everything's going. He says to Uriah, go home, wash your feet, which probably just means wash your feet, but the idea is go home and relax a little bit, and assuming, of course, that everything will play out the way that we expect it to play out, and Uriah will have relations with his wife, and when nine months later a baby's born, nobody will be the wiser. That seems to be what's going on. So Uriah leaves the palace, and the contingent of the king follows him. But Uriah lies down in front of the king's palace. He'd call up the Adonav with all the rest of his courtiers. He didn't go to his house. Remember, he had people following Uriah. So they go and tell David, He didn't go home. So he says to Uriah, You've come from a trip. Why didn't you go home? He said, think about this. The Aron, because the Aron goes out to war with him. That itself is a complex sugiah. Are there two Aronot, one Aron? Yisrael Yehuda, the united army of the north and south, are in Sukkot. Sukkot is an area in Jordan, named that way by Yaakov, visited by Gidon. Sukkot in Jordan, which is where their camp is. Notice the words, my master Yoav and his servants, 
are all camped on the field. I should come home to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Now notice, David just said, go home and wash your feet. But the assumption is, of course, he would go home and he would have a meal and he would have relations with his wife, everything else that a soldier does when on furlough. He says, by your life and the life of your soul, and he swears by the life of the king, if I would do such a thing. He takes an oath by the king's name. Now, by the way, something important to notice. You could critique Uriah for saying, Adoni Yoav, for saying to David, my master Yoav, in front of David. But that seems to be corrected almost immediately when David swears by the life of the king, indicating that the king's name and the king's life is the dearest thing to him, and he's going to use it for an oath. So he would never do such a thing. So David says to Uriah, stay here and I'll send you back to war tomorrow. Sounds like Uriah is eager to get back to his buddies. So he stays there that day and the next day. So David now gets Uriah drunk. Perhaps he's trying to have him break down his inhibitions and his loyalty to the troops, and he would go home. But he goes and lies down on that same bed out in the, the, the palace. Didn't go to his house. Now David sends a message with Uriah to Yoav. What's the message? He, the message is, put Uriah facing the, the war. I mean, put him right on the front. And then everybody retreat quickly and leave him there, and he'll get killed. Now, the message is very clear to Yoav, I want Uriah dead, which is a very strange thing for David to say. So as Yoav is watching the city, remember, it's under siege, so he put Uriah to a place where he knew there were soldiers. And the people of Ammon come out and they fight. That seems to be a regular thing. They come out and fight. And some of David's soldiers died. Uriah died. So we don't know if Yoav ever carried out David's wishes. One way or the other, Uriah died. Again, the David called the Hamas. So Yoav now sends back a report of what happened. We attacked Ammon, and Ammon came out and fought, and we lost some men. And now Yoav, who's an interesting character by himself, um, so it kind of shows us that he's wise to David, because he says as follows. He tells the messenger who's going to go tell David, After you finished giving the report, if the king gets angry, and this should remind us of the story of David and Yonatan and Machar Chodesh, that we'll be reading in a couple of weeks as Haftarah, uh, where David says to, uh, to Yonatan, if the king gets angry when you fi- he finds out that I've gone away, then we know what's what. So now, David says, Yoav says to the, to the messenger, if David gets angry, and he says, why did you go approach the city frontally to fight? You know how they throw things down from the top of the wall. Remember Gidon, Yerubal, whose son Avimelech was the uh, wannabe king and the king of Shechem for a couple of years, a disastrous thing. And he ended up dying because a woman threw a millstone off of the tower in Tevetz. So, 
He tells he remembers the story. So if the king says to you that why did you guys attack the city frontally? Don't you know what happened? Everybody knows the story of, of Avimelech. So you can you can console the king by saying, "Don't worry, Uriah died also." In other words, I'm a little bit couching the words, but that's what the the sense of it is. If the king gets angry that you attacked that we attacked frontally. Here's the answer you should give him: is Uriah also died? So the messenger went. So the messenger goes and he tells David everything, and we're waiting for David to get angry. They overwhelmed us, and they came out to the field. I mean, they left their city, even though we had an under, under siege. We fought them up until the gates of the city. They threw stuff down from the top of the, uh, the rocks, etc., from the top of the wall. And some of your courtiers died. And Uriah also died. So notice, the Malach didn't do what he was told either. He didn't wait for David to get angry. He put Uriah's death in his initial report. And David says, So he said, don't feel bad about this. The sword kills this way and that way. That's what happens in war. People die. Now notice how cavalier David is being, at least externally, about the death of some of his men, including Uriah. And saying to the messenger, don't feel bad about giving this news. Now strengthen up and take the city and overwhelm it. In the meantime, Bathsheba hears that her husband has died. And interestingly enough, she mourns for her husband. Now does that mean that she mourned in a very superficial way, that she wasn't really interested, and she saw she had a chance to marry David? Or maybe the opposite. Maybe she was very much in love with her husband and felt terrible about his, him, his dying. And, of course, a lot of that depends on how much of a willing participant she was in the affair, which is something that we will get to next week. In the meantime, the period of mourning passed, we'll assume 30 days, David goes and brings her into his house, and she is his wife, and she gives birth to a son who is David's son from that affair, and what David did was very bad in God's eyes. Now, remember, from the perspective of the community, this looks like a real noble act. David had a colonel who was killed in battle, and David now takes his wife in among his other wives to take care of her, and she was pregnant, so he's going to raise the child. looks beautiful, but we who have the inside track know something very different. So what happens? Since the passage ended with that God was very displeased with what Uriah, with what David had done, we anticipate there's going to be a response, and here it comes. And in one of the most famous passages in uh, in in Tanakh coming up, Natan el David. So Hashem sends Natan, who was one of the three authors of Sefer Shmuel according to Chazal, and who was David's court prophet. So Natan comes and gives what we refer to as a mashal shiputi, or a juridical parable, where you pose a theoretical question about law and get the other person to commit to a position and then turn around and demonstrate that they are actually the person in the story. And it happened several times in David's life, but this is the most famous example. This is known as mashal kibsat tarash, the parable of the poor man's you. Here we go. 
So there's two men in a city, one's rich, one's poor. The rich man had tons of flock and herd. The poor man had nothing. He had one lamb that he had bought. And he kept her alive, and she grew up with him and with his sons. It doesn't say anything about a wife in this story. She ate from his bread. She drank from his cup. And she lay in his arms. And she was like a daughter to him, or like Chazal say, like a wife to him. Uh, famous Ramer. A guy came to visit the rich guy. He didn't want to take from his own animals. To prepare an, uh, an animal for this, for the guest. He took the poor man's ewe and slaughtered it and prepared it for this guest. All right. Now, the story is just very hard to believe. Uh, David's reaction, as we'll see, is hard to believe, unless we put a little twist on it, which I'll do in a second. David David became enraged at the man. And he said to Natan, He said, By God's life, it's an oath, this man deserves to die. And he has to pay a four times, meaning the state would have to pay a four times for the lamb, because he did this terrible thing and he had no compassion. Now, taking another person's property, as bad as it is, doesn't ever earn the death penalty in Judaism. There's no such thing. The fourfold payments is exactly the law in Sefer Dvarim. Sorry, in Sefer Shmot, you have to pay four times for stealing and slaughtering another person's lamb. That's exactly it. The death penalty is strange, which leads one to think that Natan and David here are having what we already know is a theoretical discussion, meaning that Natan comes and says, let me pose a hypothetical to you. What would it be if this happened? And they'd say, oh, that's terrible. The guy should die, and he should pay four times. He doesn't really mean it, because, of course, you can't kill somebody for stealing somebody's property, etc. And having somebody who's got a lamb that uh, lives with him and sleeps with him is itself, uh, shall we say, highly questionable. But again, it's proposed that way to try to set it up. And what happens? <clears throat> so Natan says to David, that's you. This is what God said. I anointed you to be king over Israel. And I saved you from Shoal. All the time Shoal was chasing you. I was. I saved you. I gave your his household to you, and the wives of your master to lie with. It's a little unclear what that means, except it may refer to Abigail, the wife of Naval, who wanted to kill David, and or wanted to hurt David, and uh, the fact that David's first wife, Achinoam, first wife after Michal, Achinoam, is the same name as the wife of Shaul. A little unclear. I gave you the whole household of Israel If that's not enough for you, I will give you this much and more. By the way, we learned halacha from here that David at this point had six wives, and from there we learned that the king's limit is 18, the Mishnah Sanhedrin, six, and another, and another, so six times three. Why did you degrade God's word to do that which is evil in my eyes? And now he lists it. You killed Uriah by the sword. 
Now, David didn't raise the sword, but David ordered him to be killed. And you took his wife as a wife. Now, notice that the accusation here is not about taking Bathsheba first. It's about having Uriah killed and then taking Bathsheba. How did you kill him? You killed him through the Jordanians. And now the sword will not leave you forever, meaning it won't leave your household forever. Because you degraded me and you took Uriah's wife and you had Uriah killed. It's almost as if David only desired Bathsheba and never touched her and arranged to have her husband killed, and then took her, and that's what God's angry at. That's the simple read of the text. So now, I'm going to create evil from inside your house, rebellion inside your house. This, of course, plays out with with Shalom. And I'm going to take your wives right in front of you. And I'm going to give them to your fellow. And he's going to lie with your wives right in front of the sun, publicly. You did it quietly. You did it and you thought nobody would see. And I'm going to do this publicly in front of everybody. Now watch what happens. And David says two words. I sin before God. So Natan immediately tells David, God has not exactly forgiven you, but is overlooking it. You're not going to die. F.S. But, you degraded God's enemies. The way of saying you degraded God with this word, with this matter. The child that's born to you will die. Now notice, everything up until now, it seemed that it, there was nothing explicit about David being the father of that child. It seemed that uh, Uriah had impregnated his wife, had gone off to battle, and then David, because he wanted the wife, had Uriah killed and then took the wife in. And it seems like on that level, it's uh, we're, we're operating. And then suddenly Natan throws in one word. He says, the son, which is your son, is going to die. So there are no secrets anymore. Um, and then the rest of the parak is uh, is... Not our concern for this. You read it through, but what happens is that uh, the son immediately um, uh, gets sick, and David mourns for the son and prays for the son, and then the son dies. And then uh, afterwards, uh, David comforts Bathsheba, and together they have a son, and that son is Shlomo, who later becomes the king. Okay. What we've seen here is the story. What we've done in this shiur is an introduction to Midrash looked at the things that we need to look at when studying Midrash, which are the literary context of the Midrash itself, the background, if possible, of the author of the Midrash, his setting, what's going on, and if we can get any clues as to help us interpret what's going on in the Midrash, and, uh, and then to learn the background story of the text in its original context, to see what the audience knows, because the audience lives in that time. They also know this Balmy Drash. So let's be the audience. We, we live in a particular time. We have a particular Balmy Drash coming to give, a, to give an, a, an, a new way of looking at a story that we all know. So now we're all on equal footing. Emir Tashem, next week in the Shi'ur, we're going to now look at uh, the, uh, the passage, which is on page 7, 
which is the Gemara itself and related passages in the Gemara about David. We're going to end by noting the following as something to think about. Um, remember that the entire point here is David lo chata, David didn't sin. And we've just seen the story in Tanakh. Um, but here we have a chapter of Tehillim, Perak Nun Aleph, which is a classic Perak, a gorgeous Perak, uh, and a Perak that is filled with Psukim that we use in other occasions. And it is a Perak about Shuva. It's all about asking God to cleanse us and to come closer. And authored by David. Um, now, how, I know, how do I know it's authored by David? When I look at Tehillim, uh, I don't know who the author is. Chazal say there are many authors to Tehillim. And even when David is in the superscription, is in the title, I don't know that David is necessarily the author. It could have been written, commissioned by David. It could have been written in honor of David, in memory of David, like 122 was. So I, I don't know necessarily what to do. But here it's crystal clear it's written by David, and it's about David. Lamnatzach means more than David. We'll take a look at it. And again, the translation is underneath. David said this when Natan came to him after David had sex with Bathsheba. It's very straightforward. It's exactly the piece that we just saw in the narrative, and now we're getting the poetry that David composed after Natan left him. God, please forgive me. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from my from my my wrongdoing, and look through the entire parak. Take a look in pasuk yod bet, famous. Lev tahor brali Elohim. Give me a new heart, a fresh heart, a pure heart. Give me a proper spirit. Don't cast me away. And 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 take away your holy spirit uh, from me. Right? And and in Tetvav, I will teach your ways to other sinners. People will do tshuva. Help me do tshuva successfully, and I can inspire others to do tshuva. It, the the, the parak is, is filled with pleading with God to let him do tshuva, and the opening is Kasher Baal Bachava. It's about his relationship with Bachava. So this casts into um, a more difficult light the statement, Kol David and remember Shmuel Marachmani's other statement that we saw in Moed Katan, that David is called who come al who come ulashel tshuva. He's the one who really raised tshuva to a great height. So next week we're going to look at the actual sugya in the Gemara, and see what Shmuel Marachmani means when he says Kolamer David Chatan and how it's addressed by others later on, both in the Gemara and in later centuries. Uh, and we'll go from there. In the meantime, everybody should have a wonderful day, and Amir Tzashem soon, we should have the opportunity to come together in person and study.